puberty, adolescence. Sadly, those are words that sometimes strike fear in the heart of parents. But should it be that way? Taking the time to understand the realities of puberty and adolescence in today's world goes a long way in preparing us to parent, lead, and minister to teenagers in today's rapidly changing youth culture. We talk with our friend Crystal Kurgis about puberty, adolescence, and a whole lot more on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together, we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Puberty, that's what we're talking about on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. This is gonna be a fun conversation today. I'm Walt Mueller at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, and as always, my co-host here is Sparky Soshinik. coming That's in right. Happy from podcast. <laughs> Jason Soshinik. I'm glad you're here. We're going to talk about something that uh, I guess we've both been through this, haven't we? Uh, yeah. Okay. I, All right. I hope so. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I can't remember. But we're going to talk about navigating puberty and work to give some help to parents and youth workers here as kids go through this God-ordained change. And we're going to bring in a, a good friend of ours, Crystal Kurgis, who has been talking about this for years and has specialized especially in working with teenage girls. So we can't wait to have that conversation. We're going to talk about youth culture, other other things that are happening in the world. And before that, just a pause for a question from Kenton and Chris. Who's got it today? All right, I've got the question today. Okay, all right. We'll because see if this is a good one. Puberty, we'll keep things a little juvenile. And, uh, you know, we also oh, have boy. a co-worker here at CPYU who's gone through a surgery, uh, a nasal surgery, right? So, right, right. So, so this question he might relate to as well. Um, he might not want to hear this question right at the moment while he's recovering. All right, if you had to choose, we're going to do a little would you rather yeah. So if you had to choose between one of these two things, and you were stuck with them for the rest of your life. All right, so we've got, and it's a would you rather, but just one would you rather. Is there going to be multiple? There's two things, and you have to okay, pick right, which okay, one right. you yeah. okay. I get that. I just wondered if you were going to yep, give us a whole one. list here. No, just one. I want to try to keep this as as quick and painless as possible, there you especially go. for listeners. Sure. So your choices are you have the hiccups for the rest of your life, or you have that feeling that you're going to sneeze but you're not able to. Oh. Wow. Okay, those are two very difficult choices. Well, they're not yeah, they're I, not even good options. It's like, do you want me that's to That's the kind of the point of well, Do you want me to, do you want me to shoot an arrow in your left eye or in your right eye? You have a choice. That that's that, the point of would you rather? Yeah. All that's right. Exactly that's the hey, point. would you like a candy cane or would you like dirt, you know? It's Well, I Do you have your answer, Jason? I, I I've got well, a quick one. Okay, what's your quick one? It's it's the hiccups because for me when that sneeze feeling comes, everything shuts down. If I'm driving the car and I feel that it sneeze thing coming, I am taking in <laughs> everything in my field of vision because I realize there's actually gonna be a moment there where I don't see anything. And so I, I wanna know where I'm going because for me a sneeze <laughs> A sneeze, it's not, it's not a happening. It's a, it's a momentous event. I, everything gets involved in it, and I just, as, I, I think that's what I inherited from my dad. I don't know. He used to have these sneezes that, you know, the, the windows on the house and the walls would just expand and then come back in. So, yeah, I'll take the hiccups. I, but, you know, then I read wow. those stories about people who have those things for years, and it's horrifying. But, but the... But well, the 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 question was, you had that sensation. Doesn't mean that you're gonna sneeze. It just means that you have the sensation. So, so the sensation, like the thing I think about is, I get that sensation and I can actually fight it off. I've done it a few times when I've been on the podcast. But you can't fight and, it off if it's gonna be there for the rest of your life. But if it's there the rest of your life, just like the hiccups, you get used to it. You, you life goes on. You. You you navigate the sensation, you navigate the hiccups. 
I, I will say that, that even though in the lead up to the sneeze, it can be quite distracting uh, and and polarize uh, you from moving. I, I actually probably would also do the hiccups. I, I just think yeah. they're, hey, they're look, a little bit easier to manage. For you and me, every either one of those would just shut us down. We wouldn't be able to function in our lives the way we've had to function. Like, how could you stand? How could we record a podcast? How could we stand up in front a of a group editing. and speak? Oh, that would I mean, be a lot of fun. We just have a lot of hand motions. If we we are seized, the the sneezing sensation would just be like a like just with a you can't see what I'm doing, but like putting your hands up, you know, trying to make sure you you don't sneeze. And then the hiccups, you just on the podcast, it'd be really simple because you could edit it out. Yeah, you know, it'd just be like yeah, then every the you just you just like you can edit those out. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, quick answer from you guys. Try oh. not, try not to take ten minutes like Jason just took. Right, I, I would take the sneeze wow. any any day of the week. I'd take the sneeze. Okay, all right. I'll go with hiccups. I'll hiccups. Take the hiccups. Okay, all right. Uh, uh, so after we're done today, you guys argue that out, and uh, I'd like to hear your reasoning for why you chose what you chose. All right. That's great. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we should get to some some trends and issues before the hiccups take us over. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, let's talk about youth culture. This is our two minute drill, and we're getting better at this, aren't we? In terms of staying we are. within we're doing two a lot minutes, better. let's see who can. Yeah, let's see you know who can I, win this I, round. Yeah, <laughs> I enjoy the banter as much as giving the information. So, okay. So hopefully we'll 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 get to the place where we actually are able to do both. All right. So uh, first first trend. First alert, first thing to be aware of. Uh, we're finding that fewer uh, adolescents are meeting the required levels of physical activity. Not really a surprise to many of us, uh, but uh, it is something that we have to pay attention to. The Centers for Disease Control actually uh, recommends that a minimum of 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity take place daily. Uh, as you and I are aware, we've talked about on this podcast, this is uh, steadily dropping. I'm seeing this in the lives of so many of the young kids that, that I'm around, but but observing it when I get into the high school and seeing how uh, little physical activity they've had throughout most of their life. In fact, what, they're, what, what studies are now showing is that less than 9% of adolescents uh, are performing or having an hour or more of moderate to vigorous physical activity. Now, one place where uh, uh, they're finding more of this is actually when a young adult attends college and does not stay at home, but actually stays in the dorm. And, and which is really surprising, but the more I think about it, my wife and I lived in a uh, dorm setting for several years. I was a student at one time and lived in the dorm, and I just remember the number of activities and things that were allowed or uh, were arranged, scheduled to be able to go out. So I do think that, that just paying attention to our own physical activity, to our family's physical activity, these are really important things. Just even looking at scripture, right? One of the things that, that it talks about is our body is a holy temple. So how are we treating it? And how are we as a family finding times to do physical activity? Mm -hmm. And discipleship, you know, just care for the body is important. And so parents right. and youth workers be speaking about that all the time, giving kids opportunities to learn how to incorporate those, uh, incorporate those practices into their lives for the rest of their lives. Well, we didn't have a— You beat the bell. We beat the bell. That's that might be Jason. the first time ever. That's a first. For Jason, That is a yeah, first. That's a first for Jason. Oh. Well, let me, let me give you—you uh, know, we're going to talk a little bit later about puberty. I'm I keep mentioning this because I'm pretty excited about this. And I don't know if you've heard of this kid who has not yet reached puberty, William Malice. Is that name familiar to you, Jason? Do you know that name? No, it's not. Okay, so it William Malice is nine years old. And last May, he graduated from high school. He lives in Penn Township, Pennsylvania, which I think is outside of Pittsburgh. Is that right, Penn Township, Chris? Somebody, yeah. yeah. So, so he graduated from high school. He's among the youngest people ever to attend college. Right now, this fall, he's taking a full schedule of classes at the Community College of Allegheny County. And next fall, he's going to enroll, this is amazing to me, at Carnegie Mellon University, which is one of the toughest wow. schools you know, in the country. He's going to enroll there. And he's. <laughs> this is what's crazy. I mean, th these are the kinds of kids that when you're around them, when I'm around kids who are, I know are smarter than me at two and three <laughs> years old, 
It yes. just makes me want to shut down because I know they're looking at me going, this guy is really stupid. You know, they're just, and I know they're thinking <laughs> about me. It just terrifies me. But when he was six months old, he was, um, he, he, he was identifying numbers at six months old accurately. By seven months old, he was speaking in complete sentences. So William wants to study uh, the physics and chemistry of space. He wants to earn a doctorate degree, which he'll probably have by the time he's 12. Uh, he wants to That's work right. as an astrophysicist. He talks about concepts like displacement of space-time, singularity, and pure gravity. I, I don't know what any of those things are, but big words. And then he's attempting to explain to people why black holes aren't supermassive, as theorized by people like Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking. But here's the best part, and I love this. This kid has been granted an amazing mind. He wants, in his words, I want to prove to everybody that God does exist. And he wants to show that all that is could only be by uh, the forming of the cosmos by an outside force. So kudos to him. And, yeah, um, for sure. Sorry, William, I'm nowhere near as smart as you and never will be. But I think that's well, a great, just a great, and, you know, that's a fun thing to talk about. That kid's going to oh, use his mind thing. like that. You should invite him to be a part of the doctoral program. Oh, uh, at Gordon-Conwell. Yeah. 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 yeah, well, see, yeah, now be... if he does that, that's when Duffy and I look across from each other. Every time we give a lecture, every time we lead a discussion and we're going, you know, I wonder what William thought of that. That's right. You know, the nine-year-olds. I wonder what <laughs> William thought that of that. That should be a, You hate being on go. edge like that. Okay. <laughs> well, moving on to the next thing, uh, just just uh, with looking at the, the teenage brain and, and some of what's going on with regards to social media, and it's not a surprise, but uh, teens actually like to follow and like the things that their peers are following and liking. Not 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 uh, sending shockwaves through our community of listeners, but uh, there is actually a study that was just recently done that it, uh, showed that when a photo had high likes, was was well received, no matter if it showed risky behavior, neutral behavior, or if it was their own, uh, they they would more likely, if it had high likes, like it, and if it had low likes, again, if it was risky, neutral, or even in their own, they may not like it. And um, it just goes to prove that social media has a tremendous influence on the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we respond. Uh, and it's based upon likes. We hear this phrase, getting caught up in the likes. And so uh, there is no social capital yeah. in the likes. That's right. And, uh, and so just being able to be aware of what are the things that we're curating, not only with what we're showing, but also what we're, we're liking and following. These are important things for us to be aware of. And um, these are places where our teens are being uh, impacted, both positively and negatively. So just being aware of some of this new science that actually is proving a lot of what we've already known is really important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. Hey, let me let me move on to something. And, and I've and, left you speechless because I've gone twice. Well, I'm a little bit – I am speechless over that, but I'm a little bit speechless over this next story. And I think this is – a little bit of the sign of things to come, a trend that's, that we're going to start seeing more and more. And this is because we live in a pluralistic culture where we value free speech. I hope we welcome free speech, the exchange of ideas, and that sharpens us. You know, sometimes we want to protect our kids from other ideas, and I think to, to have them not hear them is an easy way out rather than having them hear them and then reasoning with them through the right way to think about things. If that makes sense, you're a parent of young yeah. kids. So in uh, Portland, Oregon, have you heard about this, the, the local yes, chapter have. of the Satanic Temple? You might be able to shed some light on this, but the story is going out across the Internet now, and it's, it's legitimate that they are bringing an after-school Satan club to an elementary school within the Portland city limits. And they are saying that it's uh, really a program about science and rational thinking. Now, if you understand the difference between white magic and black magic, as I understand, it's been years since I've talked about these things or studied it. Uh, but but Wicca, uh, they don't believe in a literal Satan. They believe, you know, that Satan represents everything that's evil. Uh, but, you know, and it's more about nature worship and things like that. But this, this, um, this club, the After School Satan Club, the purpose is to counter 
the Good News Club, which is an after-school club put on by Child Evangelism Fellowship, which is a Bible-centered organization. They have chapters here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where we are. And so on the After School Satan Club website, ASSC, which people can check out, it says, Across the nation, parents are concerned about encroachments by proselytizing evangelicals in their public schools and are eager to establish the presence of a contrasting voice that helps children to understand that one doesn't need to submit to superstition in order to be a good person. And their goal is to put one of these After School Satan Clubs in every school where the Good News Clubs or other clubs like that exist, uh, trying to establish their presence. So really what this is is a call to be engaged with their kids, to teach them how to discern and be aware of what's happening in, in your particular community. Well, the the next thing, especially as we, we just dive into puberty, puberty is a time where um, your body is doing strange things, but as you continue to move through adolescence, there's a lot of uh, choices that a adolescent has to make and one of those is around the issues of drugs and alcohol and I came across uh, this we'll, we'll have the link obviously like we do with all of our articles but uh, it had four tips for talking to your teen about drugs and alcohol and I really loved and appreciated the way that they drew this out this is oftentimes what what, what I will share when I am speaking to parents uh, and there are four things first be crystal clear about your expectations I, I think that one of the things we don't always do is uh, we think that we communicate our values but the question is do you communicate your values communicate your value communicate what what it means don't just say use your best judgment communicate what exactly is the best judgment especially for you and your home and your family I always say repeat it seven times it's an important thing discuss the reasons number two discuss the reasons for refusing substances don't just say refuse them talk about why it's harmful talk about why you were refusing them three help them create a safety plan in case they find themselves in a place where they need to use drugs or alcohol it's really important that it's not just lectures or yelling but they have a safe place to be able to go if they find themselves in a situation and uh, have them practice refusing offers of drugs and alcohol. This can be really beneficial. Uh, Role-playing with them in the car when you're going places. Bring up news, right? Allow that to be opportunities for education around these these um, these choices that they're ultimately going to have to face. They're going to come to a place or in a time where these are going to be presented and they, they are going to need to know what to do. And being able to communicate your value clearly, lovingly, grace-filled uh, is going to be really important. Uh, as they move through their adolescent years. Mm, mm. Well, here's a choice. Uh, here's some information on a choice kids are making that's rather benign, uh, although parents are saying and others are saying it's getting pretty annoying. But another example of the viral nature of the inter- Internet. So uh, a while ago, somebody put up a YouTube video of bottle flipping. And what bottle flipping is, you know, water bottles. So you take uh, a spring water bottle, a little purified water bottle like you buy at the store, and it's only partially filled, and then you serve it, which is a throw. You flip it, you try to get it to land upright on its bottom. This has become something that went viral because of a YouTube video of someone doing this successfully over and over. And now middle schoolers, talk about puberty. This is the rage. In fact, the Boston Globe is reporting that in the New England area, it is driving adults nuts. The kids are just obsessed with flipping bottles. And, you know, look, part of the thing with this is maybe it is a good thing. And in an age of digital distractions, this, as the article says, is this diversion is quick, it's portable, and the science behind it is fairly elaborate, but it requires no training. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's not going to last long, obviously. Kids are going to have fun with this. It's gonna, we talked a few podcasts ago about cool and fads and trends. This, too, will pass. But in the meantime, maybe uh, those of us, maybe maybe our little nine-year-old buddy who's going to go to Carnegie Mellon University could explain the physics behind this with water, angular momentum, and gravity, um, and how all those combine <laughs> to pave the way That's for right. a soft landing. But again, just another fad. Maybe you can use it in your youth group and have a bottle-flipping competition in your middle school youth group. So leverage it. It is harmful. Um, but just something we want you to be aware of. Do you of. mean so harmless? It's harmful? I mean, it's, it's, it's a harmless, harmless, harmless. I mean, yes. say harmless, yeah. <laughs> it's harmful. I was thinking about... If I was throwing the water bottle at someone, well, that might be Well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking about my middle <laughs> yeah. school youth group because they yes. do bottle flipping and they would throw it at me. 
You know, they try yeah. to land it on my head. So, yeah, it's harmless. Thanks for catching that, guys. I just want to be yeah. sure you're awake. Well, yeah. we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to have a conversation, Jason and myself, along with our friend Crystal Curgis, about puberty. Stay with us. Here at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, we want to help you stay up to date on today's youth culture. One of the tools we've developed to keep you current is our weekly youth culture e-update. Delivered to you by email, our youth culture e-update comes to you in a format that allows you to easily scroll through and quickly choose those stories and resources that will be most helpful to you in your particular setting. To sign up for this free resource, go to our website at cpyu.org, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and enter your email address in the tab marked e-update sign up. It's that simple. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this episode of Youth Culture Matters. We are going to have a conversation that I hope is informative and a little bit fun about something that if we're an adult, we've all experienced, I believe, that's puberty, the universal experience of transitioning from childhood into adulthood, the way that God made that happen in our bodies with all the crazy, crazy stuff that goes on. I know it's a controversial topic, and we are going to talk about that. Uh, but Jason, we've got one of my friends here who you're just meeting for the first time, Crystal Curgis. Crystal, thank you for, for coming. Yeah, you, Hey, tell us a little bit about where you are and what you're doing now, and then we'll start this conversation. Okay, uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, which is where Purdue University is, and I wear all kinds of different hats. So I teach in the English department at Purdue, I do research at Purdue on the history of adolescence, and there is a long history of adolescence. Uh, I work part-time as a trainer for new staff for Young Life in Indiana and Kentucky, and I do a lot of work with uh, my friends like Walt and other people from Youth Specialties and Youth Cartel. Am I allowed to mention those names? You I can, hope so. You can mention whoever you want. For sure. Uh, doing a lot of research and training and content development and presenting to people who are in youth ministry, uh, whether it's the students or the leaders or the parents, all of those sort of different audiences. So bouncing between those things at any given time. And over the last few years, when we would encounter each other, you know, every couple of months at these conventions and things, we, we would always see you get a little more excited about this project you're working on to understand the History of Adolescence, which, by the way, has yielded a book uh, called In Search of Adolescence, A New Look at an Old Idea, published by the Youth Cartel. What kinds of things, talk a little bit about that and that project and how the lights came on and how some of this is being received, or maybe not well received. Well, there's that also. Yeah. Um, hmm. It was actually, it came out of a a PhD program in medieval literature that I did at Purdue, as odd as that may sound. Um, but I, so I'm reading all of these old documents and am always drawn to the people in the documents who are adolescent. And I started researching that and came across all these things that said there was no adolescence, it didn't exist. But I was reading about them and thought, well, it obviously did exist. Uh, things might have been different. Anyway, it took all kinds of paths, some rabbit trails, but for the last probably six years, I have just been doing archival research in documents going back to 1400 on what people said about adolescence, how they defined it, how they described it, uh, how they worried about it, how they maligned it, which they often did. And amazingly enough, over the last hundreds of years, as long as we've got written documents, adults have been saying a lot of the same things about teenagers. Um, I think culture obviously looks different and has changed, but adults' views of that age have not changed very much at all. So it's just a really fascinating thing. Just when I think I've uncovered the last possible interesting thing, I stumble across something else and i kind of am convinced now that it's a never-ending research project yeah what, what's the pushback though i mean how um yeah the pushback has partly been 
well, partly it's just because I'm fighting a narrative that we've we've come to accept that adolescence is a new thing. Uh, up until 150 years ago, everybody was getting married at 15 and 16 and having families at 18. And somehow, I don't know if it's, it's partly the movies, I think. Media has portrayed this pre-modern era where everybody was treated as an adult at a young age. Uh, there are some people who are firmly convinced, they just are firmly convinced that it didn't exist before now. And I'm not sure uh, why that's such a deeply held belief. Um, one of the things that I want to make sure people know is that I'm not saying that it hasn't changed over time. The experience, the experience has changed over time for me as a woman, actually even my adolescent experience from, we don't have to say how many years ago, but from a while ago <laughs> is really different from the adolescent experience of kids today because of technology, because of what they're watching or reading. But the fears tend to be the same of the adults, I think. So what, what you're saying then is adolescence has always been there, but the nature of adolescence has changed. However, even as the nature of it's changed because of cultural change, things happening you know, in our world, it's still always been a difficult period for kids to navigate and adults to navigate with the kids they know and love. Is that accurate? I think that's very accurate. If you read parenting manuals from three and 400 years ago, when they're talking about that stage of life, and they often did call it adolescence, they also called it youth like we do today. They used both of those terms. Sometimes they called that whole period of life puberty. Uh, that was like 12 to 14 until maybe 18. On only two occasions have I seen it called that, but I have seen that stage of life called that. Um, the in the parenting books very much were dealing with the fact that parents were experiencing a lot of their own angst about the angst that their children were going through in terms of what kind of relationships they had, who they were hanging out with, whether they were going to church or trying to skip out on church, whether they had gotten a good apprenticeship or not. A lot of the same issues that we deal with today. Mm. What, so, so people who would say adolescence is a new thing, when would they, like, where would they put the marker on the calendar to say, okay, here's where it started? Is it post-World War II? Is it, you know, with the baby boomers and marketing, you know, generationally directed marketing? Is it prior to that? You know, what have you found on that? I hope uh, that's a, a fair question. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people will point back to G. Stanley Hall's book called Adolescence and say that's when it started. He's the one, and I would say maybe that's when the official 20th century study of it started, but we were studying adolescence, not we, none of us were alive then, uh, but people were studying adolescence before that. It shows up in medical books, in books on education. Um, some people would say the modern American teenager is a post-World War II invention. And if we're talking about the modern American teenager, that's true, but if we're saying adolescence, is a post-modern or a post-World War II invention. That's we're we're painting too broad of a brush. Mm. So, I have the most recent thing I found is a woman in 1936. She was writing at a kind of psychology books, development books. Luella Cole, I think her name is, and she said then adolescence is a new thing of the modern world since technology and or uh, industrialization and schooling has become more universal. So she was saying it back in the 30s. That's the earliest person I found who said it's new since now, but she's pre-World War II. So she was talking about something different apparently at that point. Hmm. Wow. What? But even, I, I'm really... I'm actually really curious with regards to, to the, the structure of adolescence because the way that we talk about it now, and I would say post-World uh, War II, has always been uh, child, adolescence, bridged, becoming an adult. Um, so, And then now it's it, uh, it's been extended. So going back, you mentioned the date 1500s uh, or, or, or even maybe even earlier, but I'm just really curious the structure of adolescence through the ages like how has it changed from some of its earliest writings to then in the early 1900s to to then now i'm just curious uh what some of the research that you've come across to, uh, how you would paint that picture 
it depends on what you mean by the structure of it. Do you mean the way that we yeah. defined it or the age range or what do you mean exactly? I would say both. Like so so it's the age range, but then also the structure or, or how then the community around uh, them yeah. would see adolescence. Okay. So the age range always is uh, noted as starting with puberty. And depending on which dictionary you read or which um, learned scholar you read, going back to 1380 even and earlier, it can end at 18, it can end at 21, it can end at 25, depending on what you're talking about. So culturally around it, one of the big things was they didn't have high school, obviously, for every adolescent, but apprenticeships were sort of a similar experience. And through time apprenticeship ending age was shifted depending on what go was going on economically or other things in culture. So they didn't start until puberty usually, and then they lasted seven years at least. And there were laws. You couldn't get married until you finished your apprenticeship, which was at least 21 in most cases. Sometimes it got bumped up even older. Um, so the church, there were, you could be, confirmed and baptized, but you could not become a member until you had reached adulthood, the full age of adulthood. So it depends on what you're reading. If you're reading laws like the Massachusetts early laws of the colony of Massachusetts, there's certain dates when someone who was 18 might be able to do something, but they couldn't vote until they were 21 in early colonial America. And if you're talking about the church, there might've been different criteria about when you had moved out of the development stage apprenticeships had their own ages. So it's somewhat like today where you've got the public school system defining it. Uh, the driving age is part of one of the you know defining things for adolescents. When the church lets you become a member, when you can vote, there's all these different criteria on the outside of you. And those existed in the olden days, for lack of a better word. But it varied depending on where you were. If you're an immigrant out in the middle of a field in Nebraska, which is a lovely place to be, by the way. That's where my family immigrated to. Uh, and there's no county government going on yet and no high schools. It might look different than it did for a kid in New York City, obviously, much like today. Not that today there's only fields in the middle of Nebraska. It's lovely. And they have high schools. And they have yeah, high yeah, schools. Yeah, I was thinking and about moving there. No high school. That would have been awesome. <laughs> now you know what uh, my adolescence was like. Yeah, there's a I don't little know. peek into that window. Um, let me ask you this: You know, when I talk about um, Duffy, oh, excuse me, back up. Marv and I do a se day-long seminar called "Tackling the Tough Stuff," and I frame the conversation early on, and I talk about tough stuff factors. So these would be cultural realities, contextual realities, and I talk about developmental realities that make life tough for kids. So I talk about um, early puberty, not so much precocious puberty, but early, pu early puberty, which, and I'm wondering if you're seeing this, I'm assuming you are, where the age, and it's easier to track in girls than guys, um, where the age is, has gotten younger and younger. So let me read this to you. During, if you, if you use as markers, which is what you were talking about, and I guess a lot of, a lot of researchers are doing this now, the start of adolescence or puberty in girls is menarche, and then adulthood is reached uh, when they get married. It's really stretching out. But they're saying that during each decade since 1950, the average age of menarche has dropped by three to four months, while the average age for marriage has risen by one year. Mm -hmm. Accurate? Well, what do you think? Uh, well, if that's what the numbers say, I, yeah. I would with it but i think that the problem is they've only gone back 70 years right and okay 1950 i mean there were people writing hilden uh or um hildegard of bingen i'm saying her name wrong and i can't think of what it is right now uh was talking about 12 year old girls going through puberty yeah. and words about the age so i i think we have a very short view of history and we go back a certain point and if it's been declining since then we assume it's been declining since forever but I think probably if we went back farther we'd have peaks and valleys throughout all of history and actually the way they're defining puberty now based on uh, something I watched this morning uh, from two women who this is sort of their specialty is early puberty is some people now are not 
defining the starting point as you were. They're defining it as breast development, which they say is starting even younger. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting other thing to consider. But I don't, I would argue, based on reading things back for many, many hundreds of years, that the age of puberty has not dropped significantly. I'm not saying it hasn't dropped since 1950. That's very possible. But that if you would go back further and further and further, you would find people talking about puberty in girls at age 12 as being the norm across the board. So the reality is then, just for sake of discussion purposes and, and getting practical after we take a break here, is that adolescence is real. It's here. It's not easy. There are cultural factors that complicate this, and I think that if we had a conversation, you, me, Jason, other friends who are roughly in our, you know, 20, 30-year age span, whoops, we would say, you know, back when we were kids, it was difficult, but it, it, we would, if we had our choice, we'd rather go through it then ra- rather than now. I mean, I feel that way. Do you guys feel that way? Is that that the cultural factors have changed this? I was not comfortable in my skin, just to be blunt. Middle school was, I felt like I was on stage constantly and nobody was looking at me. You know, I mean, you know how that is, right? It just, would you agree with that? You're being pensive, you don't wanna answer that. What do you think? I mean, am I barking up the wrong tree? I'm telling you my experience, I think, And even just looking at my own four kids, yeah. you know, the three older kids experienced a different cultural experience during adolescence than the fourth, especially with the advent of technology, social media and technology. Yeah, sure they did. I would say that technology has probably changed the adolescent experience more than anything else. I would agree. Much more, yeah, much more than high school, uh, though I'm sure that at the time people felt like television had changed it more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's a it's um that's a really hard question to answer. What would happen, and whether I'd rather go through it when I went through it or now? I middle school was hard for me as well. It was in many ways tragic and difficult. All I know, Walt, is that every generation has said the same thing. Yeah, and that's what every, we want to address. Yeah, every generation has said. It's worse than it's ever been. Kids are dealing with more than they've ever dealt with. Kids are more difficult than they've ever been. Kids are never going to stay in the church. Even that conversation has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Well, let's do this. This is a good conversation. And by the way, I do want to recommend Crystal's book and her research. And I'm sure there's going to be more coming out on this as you read more and more over the years since you put this out. But the book, uh, In Search of Adolescence, A New Look at an Old Idea, she is digging deeper and deeper into the oldness of this idea and giving us information on that. So helpful. Great conversations with her on that. But what we want to do is take a break and then come back and get very practical talking about puberty because, you know, for those of us who are walking kids through it, whether we're youth workers or parents, in many ways, the conversation we just had is not sometimes the most important conversation, the conversation we need to have is help me understand this now and get, give me some help to, to walk through it. This won't be the, the answer at all, cure it all, but we're going to have a good conversation about it. Stick with us. We'll be right back with Crystal Curtis. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate the difficult landscape of the emerging digital frontier to the glory of God, We've launched a digital kids initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our digital kids initiative and a growing number of free resources and downloads by visiting the website at digitalkidsinitiative.com. This is one more way that we're helping you lead your kids to live lives where their faith in God is integrated into the growing amount of time they're spending with social media and technology. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of Youth Culture Matters. We're having a chat today with Crystal Curgis. Jason and I are very interested to hear what Crystal has to say from her research about adolescence. And we've been focusing in, or we're going to focus in in just a few seconds, on 
uh, puberty and how to help kids navigate that stage of life. And so we'll talk about some practical ways that youth workers and parents can do that and work together to do that. But before we do that, Crystal, I hope you're ready for this. We do this this little thing we call Take 5, and Jason's put together some questions for you. He's going to fire them at you, and this is purely for fun. Maybe it gets serious. I don't know. I don't know what kind of mood he's in today, but we'll hear your <laughs> answers. Just a way for us to get to know you and for listeners to get to know you a little better. Do you, do you have questions, Jason? I do. Okay. I have I have five questions. These are These are... These are totally random, so they'll be all okay. over the place. But hopefully and by the way, we, while you're asking the questions, we're not rating her answers. We are going to rate your questions. Oh, good. So, oh, that's, good. that's yeah. great. So we'll we'll oh, see. Oh, all right. Comes out. Well, so. if I had known that, now now I have a little bit of performance uh, anxiety. So we'll we'll see how we do here. First question: favorite family activity. Favorite family activity right now is camping. We love camping. That's great. Yeah. What do you did you do you have a trip that you took this summer that you would love to share or a favorite place that you love to camp? Uh, we like state parks. We camped every weekend in May at a state park before we headed off to do eight weeks of summer camps with middle school and high school kids, which was not the <laughs> kind of camping. I do love that kind of camping, but I love camping in our little teeny tiny camper. That's great. So you That's do a camper. You don't do tents. You do a camper. Well, yes. I think tent sounds lovely, and my husband thinks resorts sound lovely, and so we camp in a teeny tiny camper. Okay, so it, there was Can I ask, is it one of those pop-ups, yeah, or is it, you know, oh, no. it's the full thing? Well, it's one of those hybrids where it's enclosed, but then the end, so it's already up, you can get in it, but the ends fold out with beds on them, yeah. and that looks like a pop-up, but the middle part looks like a normal camper. Okay. It's adorable. That's great. It's adorable. And the reason okay. I ask is because Lisa wants to do this state or uh, national park trip. I recommend it. Yeah, so yes. we'll talk yeah. about that later. That's great. Camping is always a great choice. Okay, second question. One meal you most love? One meal? Yeah, one meal. Did he say mill? One meal you most meal. loved? And then one I was meal. He was eating right. while he said that. That's why we couldn't understand him. I was him. not was, eating. We looked at each other like one mil. You love one. Easy. Well, easy. I don't need your microaggression. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Hey, I don't need you, you buddy, criticizing the you way that I talk. I'll give you macroaggression. You don't. I'm glad. Okay, uh, so one we translate meal. One meal that you love. <laughs> Lou Malnati's pizza from Lou Malnati's in Chicago, and I prefer the Lou special. Okay. Wow. Now you might have some listeners going and checking that out. That's great. Oh, okay. Amazing. They ship. They freeze and ship. Really? They ship to your house. Yes. You probably okay. cost an arm and a leg, but. Could, could like I call them and order any milk? <laughs> yeah, any you milk. could. Yeah. You could. Oh, I meant me. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, moving on. Okay. If you had to choose one superhero to rescue you, who would it be, and what would they be rescuing you from? Oh my gosh! Um, oh, oh, I that is hard. I would. Um, does it ha uh, does it have to be like an Avenger Marvel superhero kind of person? No, we we do not discriminate against Marvel DC. Then I would pick Beowulf who was a medieval superhero for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, that's great. He would yep. be rescuing me from the jaws of a dragon. Wow. Mm. That, those were not the, the responses I was planning, but they were yeah. perfect. I love I'm that. I'm a medievalist, Jason. I'm a medievalist, yes. That's I know. I well, I should have come to expect that the longer that we've gotten to know each other. So <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, you don't that want answer. that dragon to have, have Crystal as his last mill. No. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, yeah. that's right. No. <laughs> By the way, the game right. I'm playing now is how can I work that? Can I work your faux pas, which yeah. you don't believe was, into every question you ask now? So go that's ahead. Fine. Number, what are we up I to? Number four. I appreciate that you're taking the one mistake that I made and and <laughs> pointing it out to everyone over and over. That's well, almost that was, like going through puberty again. That was Thank your you. second mistake, claiming only one mistake. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, moving on. Fourth question. The music that is currently playing in your car, when you get into the car, uh, so maybe it's a CD, maybe it's something that's on your uh, iPhone or Bluetooth or whatever you use to listen to music, 
if it were to play what you were just listening to when you uh, turned it off, what would it be? If I went into my car and turned on the CD player, it would actually be playing not music. It would be um, an audio recording of C.S. Lewis reading The Four Loves. There's a recording of that, and it's delightful. It's lovely. Really? Yep. So I have four That's cool. of audio recordings of him, and they are they're lovely. His accent is just lovely, and his we could stop. I'll stop talking about this now because I could talk about it forever. Crystal, this. This is great because you were like taking Jason's questions and just shredding them with your answers. It's no, so funny she, to watch his she, face. No, she is not shredding them. She is making them more <laughs> intellectual than I them. ever yeah, thought they would yeah, be. Yeah. They they are by by far yeah. the best responses we've yeah. had. Did you I, Google? I love this. Did Jason? If there were music playing, if there were music playing, it might be uh, CCR or Doobie Brothers. Mm-hmm. Or um, maybe Dave Matthews. Mm. Wow. CCR, Doobie. I think that, that like if you entered any one of those stations on Pandora, each of those artists would come up on that station. So good job. Yeah. By the that's, way, Jason, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm Googling Beowulf for you. Go ahead. Yeah, are you? That, yeah. I, I, yeah, go I, I, you know, it's interesting. I saw the future and I knew that that joke was coming, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am familiar with it. Okay, last one. Could... Uh, if you could only have, if you're uh, on an island, and you could only have one book on that island, what Gosh. book would that be? Can, can you eliminate the Bible? Just don't, yes, because yeah, everyone you, feels yeah. like the Bible. Obviously, you, you can't have that. Like that's everyone's go-to answer. Oh, oh, I, I own five thousand books, Jason. I cannot answer this question. Um, well, now you have to narrow it down to one. Uh boy so it would have to be one mostly that i could just read over and over and be i i i actually even though i yeah mm, uh i would <laughs> can you tell that i'm really this is too hard for me i, I know I would, this yeah, this I is like you're talking about her children here i know I, this which one like. do i choose yeah i would narrow it down to one of the inklings and I would probably narrow it down to fiction. And even though I love the Chronicles and have studied them a lot and done other things with them, I probably would take The Hobbit with me, I think. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So if, yep. if you were to include The Lord of the Rings as one book, not, not separated into three, would you have chosen that over The Hobbit or would you have taken The Hobbit still? No, I think I would have taken The Hobbit, and not necessarily because I love it more. Yeah. Um, I just, I love the episodic nature of it, and I love that it's for children. I think it's it's a yeah. brilliant book for children. Um, yeah, I think that's what I would take. I, Of all the books that I've taught before, no, oh, no, I might, Out of the Silent Planet maybe would be a close second. Wow. Okay. I just I, I have to point out that I love the way that you deduced what book you're going to do because our listeners don't see this, but your bookshelves that are behind you as we're talking are categorized. And I just feel yeah. like you deduced uh, based upon going through each of your bookshelves until you got to the one bookshelf that, okay, fiction, and then you went to to to, to, to C.S. Lewis, then Tolkien. And I, I like that. That was a lot of fun. That was cool to see. The other thing was your questions were – I was watching her really putting her on a spot. She really started rocking back and forth. You were making her nervous, Jason, with those questions. That was good. Well, you did a great job. Yeah. You did a great job. Hey, let well, me – let me. I'll tell you what. I got a question for the two of you to, to keep the discussion going here, if that's okay, unless you've got something, Jason, you want to move nope, ahead with. That was the fifth one. I was going to sneak it right into puberty. But. I know that, uh, Jason, you've spent a lot of time talking to kids about – you know, growing up, transitioning from child to adult, especially especially as it relates to puberty. I know that Crystal has done the same. And so let's let's throw the question out to Tui, the, the two of you and your experience with, uh, with students. And we'll start with Crystal. Crystal, talk a little bit about girls and some of the tough issues, you know, briefly some of the tough issues they face and what we as adults need to be most aware of with our girls right now as they go through puberty. Then we'll come over to you, Jason, and I'll, I'll ask the same thing in relation to boys. 
Wow. Um, so one of the things that has struck me recently is how very common things that we used to think of as being rare have become. That was a very tangled sentence. I apologize. Um, no, so, that makes full sense. I, and I'm thinking already of what you're going to say here. Yeah. So, you know, for however far back eating disorders, some yep. people had them, they were the rage and, and that's what we focused on. And then people started kind of taking on the mantle of an eating disorder because someone told them about it and they tried it and it became their thing. And then it was cutting and there were a few people that we were talking about that with. And then people were hearing about it and thinking, maybe I'll try that. I mean, it really has been that casual for some people. So it's interesting how there's one thing that is the new thing and we all rush to that topic and worry about it. And while we're doing that, kids are talking about it casually and more and more of them are engaging in it. And we miss the fact that they've moved on to, there's a new, new topic. We're always a few steps behind them. So I do see a lot of self-injury things, though I will say that there's a lot of people who are engaging in that just to an extent so that it's noticed where I think there was a time when we talked about self-injury or self-harm, it was people deeply harming themselves. And now there's a lot of, I'm sort of trying this on to see how it fits me behavior, where I see a lot of girls who are um, scratching their arms just enough to sort of make a mark to get noticed, but not any deeper than that, not as deep as we've seen with some people. I'm not an expert on the difficult hurting issues. This is just my observations. Mm -hmm. So um, the fact that it's become pretty commonplace to take out whatever's going on on ourselves physically, or even if we're not dealing with something difficult, just to try it because there's a lot of people doing it is really fascinating. It's sad, but it's a fascinating thing to see. So that's one issue. Always still the issue of outer appearance with girls. It's always going to be an issue. It's been an issue for hundreds of years. How do I look? Am I beautiful? Do people care about how I look? Is someone going to choose me? Uh, why don't I look like that person? Comparing to one another is so, so difficult to watch because those that sadness goes really deep for girls. Um, issues of sexuality. Um, much like we tried on certain things, we'll, we'll try an eating disorder, we'll try self-harm. Now I see a lot of girls who are trying different sexual behaviors just because they're talked about. And let's see what this is like and whether that works for me, let me try that and see what happens. Uh, sort of, it's like a buffet of things that they're, they're trying out. So outer appearance, self-harm, um, sexual issues, sexuality issues, relationship issues. And then I think something that's been around forever, which is just who am I? The nature of going through puberty and adolescence. What, what do I stand for? Who cares about me? How do I define myself? Um, what people around me are part of defining myself? I think if we can speak into girls' lives on a consistent basis about this is who you are, this is who made you, this is who loves you, this is why you have value, even though we're saying the same thing over and over, day after day after day, it needs to be said over and over. So that issue of identity, um, which all of those things play into that. Mm -hmm. So I would say those are probably some of the, a few of the main ones that I continue yeah. to see. I, I like what you said about saying it over and over again because Sometimes we get tired of hearing ourselves. Yeah. We, say, we, we say to ourselves, we've said it, they've heard it. Why would I do, say that again? And we fail to realize it. With every one of those issues you just mentioned, the culture is speaking at them 24-7 and not, not shutting down, not being quiet, just constantly pummeling them with this, with this endless barrage of messages that just totally zap any sort of sense of finding identity where they should, as you've said, in Christ, um, any sort of clear sense of, you know, Christian worldview, all that's being misshapen in their lives, I think, in so many ways. I would also say that, so culture is speaking at them all the time, but culture also, they think, 
it's not. But they also think that they're being listened to all the time, right? They can go type, they can post something somewhere and there's this appearance that someone's heard me, someone's listened to me. And in fact, many of them are on certain sites where there are, they've got all these people following them and, and responding to what they're saying. So it feels like they're being listened to. So there is maybe a sense for them, a false sense of someone's hearing me, someone's caring about how I'm feeling, someone's noticing what's going on. So as important as it is for us to be continually reaffirming and reassuring what their identity is, so we never, we never stop reminding them of who they really are, I would say maybe it's even more important that we never stop listening to them because they feel like they're being listened to by some unnamed person who's inside of their computer or their phone or out there somewhere in the cosmos, right? I'm typing a message, someone's hearing me. But I wonder if they feel like they're being heard and listened to by us as well. Mm. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I would add that. Probably is even more important. Hmm. That's good. Jason, what, what, what do you have on your list? Yeah, well, I, um, I, th one thing that I just instantly thought of when you – uh, had asked uh, about this was, uh, I think the the biology of what's going on in a boy's body um, as they're moving from um, being a, a child into an adolescent. I, I think that there there has to be an understanding of that. I think that there is a, there's a perception based upon what's what's placed upon them of what their body should do and look like. And I just think that that's a, a lot of pressure to place upon a child. I think that. I think about this a lot as a parent. What, what, how am I going to help my sons navigate into their years as a, a teenager, as they're going through puberty? Um, even something as uh, ridiculous, but it has a tremendous amount of influence, which is the size of their penis. Like, like these are things that end up having a tremendous amount of influence. But I think that there, there's a dynamic of being able to explain that their biology, the way that they go through puberty, the things that are going to happen are going to look different. They're going to be unique to them. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And I think being able to navigate that, because that then leads to the other aspect of, I, I mean, hopefully we're even doing this long before they're going through puberty. But when I'm discussing this with teenagers, it's the idea of what makes a man, the idea of masculine traits. And I think that there, there's a dynamic that you're only supposed to have masculine traits as a boy. And what do you do with these feminine traits? And and I just think that there have to be conversations around masculinity and femininity. And I think it works both ways, but I think being able to have these conversations about, um, you, you know, masculine could be, you're, you have to be great at sport and you have to be able to, to walk and talk this way. And I just think that that really limits an individual and it limits the picture with which they're, they're given. And I think that, that there's, beautiful illustrations in scripture of both the masculine and feminine aspects of God that we can actually share with them in this process that, that allows for them to have a fuller understanding of how they've been made, the beauty of how they've been made, and the image of a creator that loves them, and how do they then use it. I, I love the talk of identity. I think that's so important, but I think it's also important for us as adults, as youth workers, as youth pastors, to be able to be the ones that are also speaking some of that into their lives. Not We're listening and we're engaging um, with what we're hearing. And I think that that's, that's going to be, um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey, but it's also something I just think I, it's intimate and it's a privilege when we have that opportunity to walk. Um, and it's sacred. you got to be careful with it. Hmm. One of the things I thought of, Jason, when you were just talking is... Um, I think maybe one of the ways we fail our kids in puberty, we talk about all kinds of sort of big issues, but like the very most basic thing would be to take them seriously. And um, if you, one of the best gifts we give them is to remember what it was like to be going through puberty ourselves or whatever stage of life, right? And I may not remember all of everything that I experienced or felt or thought, but I do remember what it felt like at times if you felt like someone wasn't taking you seriously, like they were laughing at you or they were kind of behind their hand, nodding their head and saying, yeah, I'm sorry you feel that way, but you knew they were sort of giggling about it or laughing or smirking or uh, treating you like a kid younger than you felt like you were. And the best conversations that I have with middle school kids and younger high school kids is when 
I am taking them seriously. And I'm not Mm -hmm. inwardly laughing at anything that they're experiencing or thinking in my head, oh, honey, just you wait four more years until whatever, whatever. If I am taking exactly what they're going through in that moment seriously and treating them not like an adult, I'm not saying that we give them adult uh, responsibility or expectations, but that I give them the same due that I would give to an adult, then the conversations open up into all kinds of things. And they will share things with us that they wouldn't have before because now they trust the fact that they can talk to me and I'm not going to laugh at whatever it is that they're going through. That maybe is so basic that it doesn't need to be said, but I think there's that when we're only inwardly laughing, but on the outside we're pretending to take them seriously, I think they know. I think they totally. That is, that's excellent advice. And and that's where I was hoping we'd land with something like that, where, you know, very practically, I mean, we haven't given people a list of how to's, but we've given them a posture and it's a posture we often forget. And that is, as Crystal said, to take them seriously. If they have a question, it's because they have the question. If, if, if there's something that has kind of risen to the top of their lives and it's the only thing they see because it's a big thing at the moment it's the only thing they see because it's a big thing at the moment we've got to we, we've got to understand that and really respect that and and treat it as such and sure in the big picture maybe 15 or 20 years from now they'll look back and go man I, that was a lot bigger to me than it really was because we all do that it's big yeah. it's big right there so we've got to we've got to deal with it I think I, I really appreciate that um, just from the, the aspect um, that when we open up that door for conversation, when we're willing to engage it, to listen, I think that it can be really powerful uh, because often then you're opening the doors to other conversation that they haven't been comfortable sharing, but that if you've been able to uh, engage, expose yourself and genuinely engage with what's going on in their life, it, it just makes it so much easier to really hear about the rest of their life. And this is such an intimate and sacred space that when I've found that when I'm engaging in these things and it's taken seriously, it actually opens up the door to so many other conversations that, that haven't happened, that they haven't allowed others into. And I think that that's a really uh, beautiful and, and powerful moment, not only in their life, but in our own lives. Mm. Hey, Crystal, as we wind this down, um, let me let me tap into some of your wisdom. I'll give you a shot here to say a couple of things. A sentence or two to parents. You've got parents, captive audience, and you've worked with kids for years. You know kids. You've studied these things. What would you say to them about adolescence and puberty? Just, a, just an encouragement or something to push them uh, to, to become more active and involved in the lives of their kids, maybe sensitive. And then secondarily, the same thing for that tribe of people that we love to work with, youth workers. Wow. Uh, well, I have to preface this by saying I raised only boys and not girls. So in my mind, I have all these great ideas about how to raise adolescent girls or girls going through puberty, but I have no idea if any of them would have actually been right. Um, I think one of the things that I would offer is kids sometimes, sometimes it feels to us as parents, I think we're, we're dancing on eggshells. Like I want to talk to my my son or daughter about this issue, but I don't know if they're ready to talk about it. And we're worried about them laughing at us. Let's be honest. Sometimes we're worried about that, but very rarely are they going to initiate those conversations with us. So we have to do this little dance of figuring out how to be the ones to initiate the conversations with grace and in a way that opens it up for them to respond or not respond and have that door open. Sometimes maybe it shouldn't even be initiating the conversation, but just going out and doing something with them that needs to get done. So a, a, a young girl is ready to, we'll just get real down and dirty here and, and personal. It's time to start shaving her legs. Do you think her, she does not want her mom to come to her and talk to her about that. Um, but this is a big deal to her that she wants to do. And maybe the better thing is to just when you're out shopping, end up in the aisle where you can buy razors and shaving cream and say, honey, you know, I was thinking that maybe we could, you could pick what you're going to need because I know that this is part of your life now and um, just make it happen on its own rather than this awkward conversation easing into it. Now, 
don't have daughters have no idea if that's the right thing or not. I want to say that. What I would say then is that you need other people besides the mom and the dad or the mom or the dad if you're a single parent family. Other adults, young adults in a kid's life who can talk to them. So we had lots of kind of college-aged and 20s, 20-aged young guys talk to our boys about certain things that my husband talked to them about, and he did it great, and we knew that they listened to him, but it was different also coming from that other person. And inviting people to come alongside you and talk to your daughters about becoming women and talk to your sons about becoming men, because no matter how great of a parent you are, there are certain things that they just don't want to hear from you because it's too weird for them. Um, and respect that. Respect it. Let other people be there and be present. I guess that's one thing that I would offer. Yeah, that's great. That's good. I love that. Well, this is good. And this is a conversation that I think we need to continue. We're, we've run out of time now, but we need to continue this on future podcasts to talk about adolescence. Love to have you back, Crystal, to hear about other things that you're reading that we're not, <laughs> you know, from way back, uh, the things that are on your shelves there that we have no clue that those things even exist. But we'll come back, talk about that, and continue some conversations on, on adolescence. As we finish up, I'm just going to mention again your book, uh, In Search of Adolescence, A New Look at an Old Idea. Um, we're going to include links to some other books that we have here at CPYU on adolescent development. We won't mention them all now, but you can find that on our uh podcast page cpyu.org and we have a handout that folks can grab youth workers you can grab this thing download it get in the, get it in the hands of the parents that you're working with parents of your students it's called a parent's guide to navigating puberty and i'll close out with this crystal any besides your book in search of adolescence a new look at an old idea any other textbooks on adolescence that would be very practical and helpful for people in youth ministry or parents? Anything you want to mention? And we'll find these and link to them as well. Um, well, you've got some pretty awesome books, Walt. Uh, Marv has some great books on dealing with hard stuff. Um, boy, I'll be honest. I have not, I, I don't have an immediate list to give you. I have people That's that fine. I trust. Yeah. Things from Walt, things from Chap, things from... Um, Marv, things from Duffy, uh, Duffy Robin. I'm saying their first name like everybody knows who they are, which they probably do. Um, I, I, here's what I would say is the best book to read on adolescence. Read your own kid. Mm. Get to know your own adolescent and maybe not worry so much about reading what other people have to say. I know it's nice to get the encouragement, so read a tidbit here and there to keep you going. But if we would spend as much time studying as our own children – as we do studying what people tell us about them, uh, we might we might feel a little less angst about raising them up to be good, strong adults. Yeah, that's a good word. Good word. Jason, any final thoughts? No, this has been really helpful. And I, 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 I do. I, I agree with your sentiment. We need to bring her back on because I think that this conversation can go a lot further with a lot of other details that we haven't been able to dive into just yet. So. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, good. Well, thanks, Crystal. Thanks, Jason. Uh, once again, for another great episode of Youth Culture Matters. And uh, again, go to the website, cpyu.org. You'll see, especially if you're uh, streaming this or downloading it through another provider, uh, you, you maybe you're missing out on everything that we've got posted. So go to our page for the podcast on cpyu.org, and you'll see links to everything we've talked about today. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.